Hello and welcome to What Else Do You Do? I'm your host, Masao. I'm an indie producer in Montreal working for Studio Cut to Bits. And today, our guest is Lauren Stone. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Lauren Stone. I am currently the Clancy Narrative Specialist at Ubisoft. I'm on a mission with Ubisoft Reflections, which is in the UK, near, uh, in Newcastle. Uh, but I actually work in uh, at Massive in Malmo, Sweden. And right now I'm in my bunker that I built that's just my like home office. And so we're like doing the hybrid thing. So like most of the time I'm in the Swedish countryside uh, talking to people across 18 different time zones because, you know. Shit gets real sometimes. It's Ubisoft. That's, oh, yeah. That's yeah, how it no. is. So it's... do you ever go into Mama or? Yeah, uh, three days a week is okay. is the goal. So, um, it, But for the last two years, I was here mostly somewhere in my house on the laptop or on my desktop. I mean, are happen. you working with anybody at Mount Massive? Like, do you actually even need to go in or? Uh, yes, because oh, okay. uh, I am predominantly uh, supporting all of the projects under the Clancy brand and the division specifically is uh, oh, okay. where I've got a lot of focus on and we are based in Melma. This is going to be a part of our Asians that work in the West interview series. So yeah, what kind of Asian are you? Um, I identify as Yonsei Hapa. So I am half Japanese and fourth generation. So I grew up in Southern California, uh, Ed's, but most Yonsei kids, our grandparents and our great-grandparents <laughs> were in concentration Japanese internment. Yeah. Uh, so we all have ties to San Francisco because that became our Ellis Island when everybody got released from camp. Um, and so as a result of that, like my grandparents met in San Francisco. And I know that I don't exist without that painful, fucked up, war criminal, prisoner bullshit history that is what happened to all Japanese Americans that mm -hmm. stayed during that time. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so my mom is from San Francisco and then she moved down to Southern California to go to school where she met my dad and then fell in love, had a baby and that's me. And now I'm in Sweden. So, <laughs> you know, chaos. <laughs> okay. On your other side, what's, what's your ethnic background? I think we've discussed it a little bit. Oh, I yeah. mean, if you're comfortable going into it. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, just, I have to remember not to say it too fast. Uh, English, Swedish, Irish, Dutch, German, Austrian, um, indigenous, and Latina. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad's side. <laughs> all, all kinds of stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, the joke was like Heinz 57 or like a white trash salad with a side of beans and a feather and, a, and just a side of rice. That's just me. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up, like, so did you grow up in a, like a, Asian community or were you like, what, what was it like growing up in Southern California? Um, so weirdly when I was little, there was not a lot of like Asian and specifically like no Japanese people around me, except for like one of my dad's coworkers. Most of my friends were, uh, white black or latina or latinx right um and there was just like a handful of asians a couple south asians and uh arabic persian friends. like my first crush was like a persian dude and then when i got older i had more asian women in my life uh but most of my like close friends when i was really little were actually indigenous because my dad was so active he was part of american indian studies he's now currently the chair of the american indian studies department at cal state long beach and so like i grew up in the arena with a lot of indigenous 
friends and like okay. people that were like my cousin's adopted way where like you get adopted into people's family mm-hmm. but like no blood relation and so like those were the people that i associated with most were other indigenous kids and then okay. like the white kids in the neighborhood and at school <laughs> in terms of your identity i mean yeah. because like so your father pro- like i guess predominantly identifies as an ind- indigenous person or indigenous um, col- mixed person as a white passing person who okay. has indigenous ancestry and but that is the community in which we were the most active right okay. and so like it's so one of those did, things that's super weird <laughs> like, okay so did right? you feel like you were i'm mixed too and i i've always kind of struggled with, with what my identity is like i grew up in japan and i definitely didn't feel japanese yeah. but i didn't really feel american either and then i came to the states and i'm like i don't know <laughs> i don't really feel like i have a particularly uh, I think this is super like <laughs> the mixed kid problem, right? Is that it's like, we don't belong to either, but we do belong to both, but neither of them will ever fully accept you because you're a part of the other. And so it is that weird thing of like, oh shit, like if people assume I'm white, then they give you certain privileges and certain fun little passes about your behavior and then like vice versa the same thing and so like it's such a weird thing and um i mentor a lot of like young writers and game developers who also have mixed ancestry and we all have the same we all have the same experience of like we have these cultures that we're very proud of and we love our parents that come from these very disparate cultures and like we want to honor that and we want to embrace that but there is always this like bar to entry of where you're allowed to actually have that access. And like, there's always like this weird kind of like, however much you decide to let people know about your truth (laughs) determines like how much they're going to actually like give you that access. And so you're always trying to like prove to people that like you still belong there and that like you're actually legitimate. And it's like, and like, I don't speak Japanese. Like that's not a thing that I, I ever grew up like learning Japanese, it was not a priority. And that's partly because like my mom didn't like going to Japanese school. She was forced to do that. So she didn't want to do that to me. Right. It's like, I know my food. Right. Like, and that's like the same thing that's like with French and with Swedish, like I know my food, I know how to like survive and be polite, but I could not pass like an actual, like I couldn't spend a day and feel like I was okay in Japan. And like, we went back with family and like, we still have family there. Not everybody came. (laughs) Um, And we have ancestral homes in um, Kurashiki, I think. Kurashiki, okay. Yeah. And like, that's, that's where our family is. And like, they run a, it is, it's really pretty. And like, our family runs like a traditional, like music and arts and dance and like theater school there. So it's like, all right. I know that. Yeah, that's definitely a that's definitely a cool thing to go and visit. Yeah, but it's like one of those things. It's like, all right, well, we're in two different countries doing two different things, but we're all working in entertainment, right? Like, maybe this is just our family's path. But it's like you know that you're a part of that, but you also know that like you only have as much access to that as people are willing to grant to you, and like you can never be a hundred of any of that, and like to try to do that is madness, and it. And it does you're not, you a disservice. Too. That's no. the thing. Like, you know, we, I am culturally and physically different than a, you know, like a fully ethnic Japanese person for sure. Yeah. And the things that your parents teach you and the stories and the morality and the, the individual culture of your family is different. Mm-hmm. Right. For and sure. it's like a lot of the morality tales that I grew up with were indigenous morality tales. And it's like, those are 
more than Japanese morality tales. And part of that was because I was in Southern California with my mom and my dad, whereas her sisters and all their kids were all in Northern California. So mm-hmm. like they were with the Asian grandparents. And so like they got more of that exposure and more of that reality, whereas I didn't. And like I was the weirdo girl doing musical theater, right? So like I was doing the things that the white kids did. So there was always an, an element of that. So it's just like... <laughs> And then being very uh, annoying and loud about the fact that, like, no, I'm not a white girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> because I'm just like, no, I'm not. And I also, like, in Orange County, there are some neo Nazis and there's a lot of white supremacy and some weird yeah. stuff that happens. Orange and is, so it's a weird spot, isn't it? It can be. But it is one of those things where it's like people assuming you're white and then you find out they're, they're Nazis. <laughs> And you're just like, we were friends yesterday. I just thought you were a straight edge punk kid. You're like, nope, you, oh, you're reading Mein Kampf this week. That's awkward. And then it's like, all right. And then challenging people's perceptions of their hatred because they're like, oh, well, you're cool. So maybe Asians aren't that bad. I was like, but Mexicans. And I'm like, I'm also Mexican. They're like, oh, well, maybe Mexicans aren't that bad. You're not black. Are you? I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm sorry. I can't challenge that part of your racism perception. Like, and so it was just like a very weird thing of like, learning that at a young age that like your safety is dependent upon how people perceive you. (laughs) And that's kind of a weird thing that I think a lot of people don't necessarily have that same kind of issue. If you've never been in a position where like someone's perception of your identity dictates how safe you are in that space. And that's something that I think a lot of mixed kids. And I also think people who are other marginalized groups that can pass as the mainstream or the majority, right, culture. It's something that's a lot of gay kids being in the closet for a long time, people being afraid of transitioning. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a thing that we all kind of carry is like, how much of that mass do we have to maintain in order to maintain our own safety and access to the groups in which we are considered to be a part of? And the horrifying power that comes with that and also like the weird hurt and pain of having to always carry that load and that extra weight that people aren't necessarily aware of that like that's just a thing we all have and it's like a weird trauma and it comes up in really stupid ways like if you went to a Japanese restaurant with me and if they decided I looked more Japanese than you and spoke to me in Japanese and I would just stare at them like they lost their head and you would feel like cool thanks guys (laughs) like (laughs) y'all are trash pandas and gotta get out of here but like right is that perception and it has nothing to do with our reality so yeah something like that actually did happen to me um i was uh hanging out in japan with a friend of mine who is asian and but not japanese and doesn't speak any japanese (laughs) and uh the waiter would want to talk to her because she looked japanese (laughs) yeah to, to him so that happened yeah. to me when I was working on Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. You we you were, were working you worked on yeah, <laughs> Fast and the I, Furious. I, Tokyo I Drift. did background on Fast That's and Furious hilarious. Tokyo Drift in LA. And there was a Mexican girl that was my friend with me, and they're like, She needs to stand in front of you because she looks more Japanese. I was like, bitch, I am Japanese. She's Mexican. Your racism <laughs> is fucked up today, guys. Well, I mean, this is Fast and Furious after all. You I know. know. <laughs> Like their their perception of Asia or Japan and so uh, and it's just something. like we're just it's, in SoCal. Yeah, I was like, we're in a weird racetrack in SoCal while you're chilling. Yeah, the, none none of this looks Japanese at all. <laughs> yeah, but. like none none of it. But yeah, yeah. it was very weird. <laughs> so we talked a lot about being mixed and kind of you know access to community. What was it like growing up with a mixed parent? Is this something you talk to about your father uh, with your father about? 
kind of. And then what's weird is like we found out we were more mixed, like the older we got. So my grandmother, we didn't know that she was secretly Latina until my grandfather died in 2005. Okay, so um, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's unpack that one. Okay, yeah, no. so... <laughs> You're like, there's a whole story there. Yeah, um, yeah no, uh, she was an orphan. Like, both of her parents died by the time that she was eight. Her father was German, and so Schmidt was the last name. Um, but her mom was indigenous and Latina. And when she became an orphan, she ended up in the foster care system and was just a slave to rich white people. And then when she turned 18, she could pass for white, so she did. And she just pretended to be white. And at that point, she met my grandfather who was perceived as white. You know, he also had some indigenous blood, but um, was perceived as white and like very beautiful man. And she's just like, I'm this weird, nerdy, awkward girl who grew up in foster care. And why would you like me go like the hot blonde girl that works at the telephone company with us? And he's like, no, she's boring and stupid. I don't like her. I like you. And they ended up getting married and having my dad and his sister. But like through that, she never, she was always afraid of being found out. And so, like, we didn't understand why she was not being anything. white or like, yeah, because it wasn't legal. It was illegal okay. for her to marry him as a white man because, yay, miscegenation laws. <laughs> Those, their entire relationship was a crime. <laughs> and like, the children are a crime. But because she passed as white, she just like hid that. And so, like, for a very long time, we're like, we don't know why you're so angry. We don't know why you're so frustrated. And like, after he passed, and we were like, oh, like, Hickey's and Estrada, like, we have all of this family that is Latina and you're not a white woman. <laughs> you're my secret like Latina indigenous grandma. And you've carried all of this like weird shame and pain about not belonging and having to hide. And it's come out in all these like really weird toxic ways. And it wasn't until my grandfather passed away that we actually like became aware of that. Like fully. So your father didn't even know that he was like he knew he was from he knew he was indigenous from the white side. Oh, from his dad's side. Yeah. Okay. So, like, we always had connections to, like, Great Lakes, like, Métis Cree, like, that was the region that we had cultural ties to that we knew about. And then we found out more. We knew about the Hickeys, but we weren't sure exactly what that was. And it's like, oh, it's Hickeys, not Hickeys, right? So it's just, like, you're anglicizing to try and pass some more. And, like, as we found out more and more of the stuff and my dad got more and more into genealogy and has taken every single one of the ancestry.com DNA 23 and me, all that stuff. He's like tracking all the lineage and finding all of this family. And like, that's just kind of a patchwork he's been putting together over the last 20 years. And then my mom's just like, I'm Japanese. It's boring. Shut up. I don't want to take this shit again. Like leave me alone. <laughs> Cause my mom is just a hundred percent Japanese. And so and like, a lot of Japanese people are, I mean, although hundred percent Japanese is, is uh, always a, uh... <laughs> A questionable. Like. Well, I mean, it's it's an asterisk because it's not they're not a ethnic monolith is the way that they pretend that they are. But uh. yeah, yeah, no, but I see you and yes, um, but yeah, but it is that thing of like my dad's got stuff everywhere. Like, okay, his his map covers like everywhere, and my mom's okay. like. So is that something you discussed with him, or and yeah. like kind of especially the the conversation about access to white areas and yeah, white no. communities. Yeah, it's something that we talk about. And he's very, okay. like, he's very white passing, right? Like, and it's one of those things that's like, what we always try to do is we try to build ladders for people, right? And so it's like, as we access communities, we try to like, make it Bring so that it becomes, yeah. yeah. 
and to actually create a path for them, right? And so, like, th- that is what we've always tried to do is, like, utilize the yeah, privilege send, that we send have. Send the elevator back down, basically. Yeah. And, like, if not even send the elevator back down. Like, make sure that, like, you're pulling the cable on that elevator, <laughs> like, back up. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but, yeah, and so that's always how we've operated as people is it's like as we're infiltrating institutions and using that privilege like to to build out those places further yeah yeah Yeah. and like and recognizing the power that comes with that privilege that is one of the things like the power that comes i thought if you infiltrate a white community you're supposed to be the token non-white person and you're supposed (laughs) to to fight for that privilege yeah no fuck that shit (laughs) well yeah no hardcore fuck that shit uh but no but that's it right it's just joking because that is something that uh i don't know people do no right it's like i have to be the one at the table like it's the the if i get mine then i'll be set kind of mentality or the yeah i don't and why would you want to be there if you're like you know like you don't why would you want to be in this like entirely white community where you're the only other like that's not great No, but that goes back to the same thing of like proximity to whiteness equals power. Yeah. Right? And like the idea of exclusivity. I think it's also power. like internalized like white supremacy oh. that oh, some God, yeah. minorities have. <laughs> yeah, no. And some white people have. Right? Like, well, yeah. Because not all white people have that. Right. Like, not, like there, there are plenty of white people who are the, like, no, that's not like this is a nonsense social construct that has been designed to elevate these three people over there who really should not have any of this wealth and power and it's just a system that's designed to uphold current power structures since this is a game dev podcast let's talk about the games industry (laughs) how do you think your experience in the games industry has been affected by the fact that you are an asian woman so for me it's been like weirdly professionally really um fulfilling um and exhilarating and uh sometimes incredibly helpful um and then just i feel incredibly lucky to have come onto the division where i got the opportunity to pick up these two asian american women that had been created by other people and be able to make their stories deeper and more real and so uh, getting to write for Fei Lau and Alani Kelso in the division too uh, has meant a ridiculous amount to me. And I know that like, there's no way that I would have been able to work with the caliber of actors that I'm working with and would have been able to tell the stories that I'm telling and have them have the reach that they have if I wasn't in the games industry. And then just when you and I were working together, being able to make Frost and being able to hire Julie and having an unaccented North American hero who's Asian um, and played by uh, an Asian Canadian played by an Asian Canadian and like actually being able to do that and to provide that opportunity. And like, I was an actor before I got into games. And so like I was writing because I was trying to like create opportunities for myself because no one was writing for fat hopper girls. That was not a thing in the early 2000s. It was just not a thing that was happening. I mean, happening. arguably it's still not happening. Yeah. Is it, no. is it happening? I've, there's I've not... more like there's more opportunity now than there was, but it's like, I, I think Mindy Kaling having a show and being seen as desirable helped like move that forward. Right. But mm-hmm. like when, I was trying to do that. It was before the Mindy project, right? It's just like none of this stuff existed. But so like I switched sides of the table and I was like, all right, I could try to elevate myself 
Or I could focus on elevating hundreds of people and telling hundreds of other people's stories and getting hundreds of people work during pandemics and like getting marginalized people into the hands of millions of players and having us show them with care and empathy and fully realized and getting actors who are from those communities to portray those communities and like the ability to do that far, far outweighs any acting aspirations I ever could have had. Um, and so I think in terms of who I am as a person, being able to create jobs for other people, being able to create characters and stories that empathize and make people from marginalized communities and people who typically aren't considered to be worthy of empathy and worthy of being considered a hero, being allowed to take that space and to shine a light on all the different ways that people can be heroic is something that I take great pride in and I know wouldn't be possible without an interactive fiction model. Yeah, that's cool. It's, yeah. it's great that uh, we can at least, uh, <laughs> I think this is the first time we've, we've had an answer to this question of like, well, you know, it's tough because we're in a white dominated space and they can be kind of shitty sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can be. But, that's, uh, that's the whole yeah. world. <laughs> like, <laughs> Speaking of Rainbow Six, I still see Hibana. It seems like Hibana is one of the still the, one of the top picks, even after all these seasons. Yeah, and I, I think and of Foss you and Cavera. Still, I still think of you when I see when you see them for marketing stuff. That makes sense. My family's moan is on her uniform. We've been going for a while, so let's let's uh, let's get ready to wrap up. Give us a parting thought on the topic of being Asian, being Asian in video games, being mixed, any of those things. Or no something one, else. Yeah, I mean, no. whatever, whatever you want. Uh, no one will be better able to tell your story than you. And right now, there is no greater platform to reach audiences and tell stories than games. And so if your goal and desire is to get as many people as possible to see your humanity, you should try becoming a video game developer. Okay. <laughs> I try to not just be all jokes and terrible. (laughs) That's just a survival mechanism. That's just a coping mechanism, right? I think, I mean, as you said, you grew up in a community that you had to kind of pass your way through. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's also one of those things. Like musical theater uh, back in those, those days must have not been particularly welcoming. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) and especially when you're like, okay, we have Flower Drum Song and we have Miss Saigon and we have The King and I. Yeah. yeah, Like, but, and like, that was it. Or like, or we have the Mikado, which, um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, no. But it is one of those things. It's like, I understand that, like, part of the reason I was an actor was that I spent all day passing and having to, code switch for whatever situation I was in. So it was like, all right, my my whole life is putting on different characters, right? Like in order to survive the day. And so this is now my job. And like, it is a way for me to escape and putting a character on intentionally that is someone else's words is way less work than having to effectively improv through your life right so like i i I totally understand that like that is part of that and i think it's also a lot of why you see a bunch of mixed kids in the arts like because we're all trying to find a way to express ourselves in a way that feels authentic to us because 
we don't have any like community that is specific and authentic to us. And we're always trying to get access to the parts of ourselves while still honoring all of the parts of ourselves and not neglecting any of the parts of ourselves. And that shit is fucking exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, <laughs> on that note, uh, <laughs> You're like, that was too heavy now. Now no, it's coming it's fine, out. It's fine. No, I know. I'm just being a jackass. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, thank you, and uh, yeah, have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Dave Wallace for providing the music. And thank you to Therese Lance for providing the logo. Bye.